Hello and welcome to Hawkeye Nation. This is Hawkcast, your Iowa football, basketball, and recruiting podcast brought to you by iowa.rivals.com. Go Iowa Awesome. I am your recruiting analyst and host, Elliot Clough, at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by Adam Jacoby and Ross Binder, as always, for our post-game recap. And boy, um, they they made us wait, didn't they? The Hawkeyes sure did in that game where it looked like the offense was clicking for part of the first half, really struggled in the second. Illinois got some things going, John Paddock and, and the Fighting Illini offense, but ultimately, the Hawkeyes pull it out 15 to 13. I'm going to start with you here, Adam. You wrote about Deacon and his performance, how he has really improved over the last month, and how the team has really bought into his leadership um, over this this stretch of him being the starter. So, And we were just talking about it off mic a moment ago. Uh, so I'll start with you, Adam, and, and, and tell us about, well, your overarching thoughts from the game but also uh your piece on on deacon post game yeah i was very impressed with the way that iowa won this game because it was sort of a a, a different way for them to win it and was almost sort of the uh cherry on top of complimentary football because this was one of the first times that we've seen all year that the offense had to be the unit that made the clutch play and did it. And there were a lot of throws made by Deacon Hill that we would not have expected him to make three weeks ago, four, five weeks ago. And when we talked to Deacon after the games, he's a different player or he's a different person, a different speaker than he was three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. A lot of that is confidence. A lot of that is having the validation of these good performances on the field. And, you know, we're, we're not talking about going from throwing for 80 yards a game to 90 yards a game. We're not talking about going from 40% passing to 45 or 50%. He's averaged 195 yards and 65% passing it's 65 it's it's high 60s over the last two games and those are serviceable passing numbers those are numbers that if you can do that in an Iowa offense with that defense and that special teams behind you you can sure win a lot of games and not in spite of the offense at that point you're actually giving the defense a little bit of leeway a little bit of margin for error and Iowa needed that in such a bad way because Illinois had that offense that you know won't ever be compared to Georgia but Addict's a, a smart good quarterback he was making throws and difficult throws especially on third downs uh, in the second half and Illinois really really wanted to win that game and found itself close to winning that game. And it was because of Deacon Hill that Iowa, uh, you know, among many others. But, you know, week six, Deacon Hill doesn't win that game. Week 11, or I guess it would be 12, Deacon Hill did. And that is the difference between a disappointing season and a division championship season. And the fact that Deacon Hill, again, what we just sort of have to keep reiterating this 
first year quarterback in the Iowa program. Hadn't really played a meaningful snap of football since 2020. Was on his way to Samford, you know, an FCS program, because he had basically been written out of Wisconsin's plans. Oh, Fordham, yes. Uh, Those seven-letter FCS programs all look alike (laughs) to me, Uh, especially the ones in the Southeast. But no, like, he had sort of been written out of Big Ten football as a prospect. And, you know, when you watched him, especially the first few starts of his, you could see why. So the fact that he was able to start to put these things together during the season with a division race to protect and and to try to guide to the finish line, and he did that, I mean, the players are bought in for him. The coaches are bought in for him. Guys, help me, but I'm actually going to say this. There might be a quarterback competition next year. There actually might. And three weeks ago, I, I would have been like, all right, that, that competition is going to last about two minutes. <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're going to have Cade extend and like flex his legs. And if they both work, he, that was going to be him starting. Now I'm not so sure because Deacon Hill has actually started to put it together. has actually started to get productive and start to make some really good decisions on the field. Some bad ones still, but you know, you're starting to see it gel and, Coagulate's not a good word. You see what I'm saying. Anyway, that was that was my thoughts. Ross, I, I, does it come through on TV that he has improved as a quarterback? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you just have to look at the throws he's making or throws he wasn't making, not even on a consistent basis, not even – it wasn't even, you know, a 1 in 10 throw for him Um you know, a month ago or six weeks ago, like that just wasn't happening. And his, his footwork his just his general presence in the pocket looks so much worse when he, you know, was first thrown into that starting quarterback spot. And it's, it's much better now. I mean, there's still work to do, of course, but it's, it's so much more, there's been so much improvement that it's, it's really striking. Uh, and he, if you want a really good illustration of improvement, um, Chad Leistico in the uh, Des Moines register today pointed out, you know, the Iowa-Minnesota game, what was that, three weeks ago? They get the ball late in the game, fourth quarter, on the 46-yard line, and uh, we know what happens. First play, he gets sacked. Third play, he throws an interception. Uh, yesterday, same exact situation. He gets the ball on the 46 and he leads a, uh, a touchdown drive. And, you know, Caleb Johnson did a tremendous amount of work on that drive, and, uh, and as did the offensive line and, and – uh, and the other blockers, but you know, Deacon still came up with a really big throw on third down to, to Nico Reggiani for a, a key first down. And, you know, he was, he, he, when they needed him to make a play, he made a play. And that was not something we saw out of Deacon two, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a month ago. And that's a, a really big step forward for him. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the third down uh, throw to Reggiani. And Hill actually talked about that specific play after the game. And he mentioned not only, you know, the fact that Nico made such a, uh, you know, a tough catch because that was a short window and a fast, you know, it was a hard throw too. But he also, excuse me, really went over 
you know, what his read was pre-snap, you know, that they were going to be bringing this blitzer. So that meant that there was going to be zero coverage. And that meant that Ragini was going to be like right there. Like he knew the bones of that play cold well after the fact, like when we, when he was talking to us about it. And that too demonstrates a lot of knowledge of the playbook and not only the playbook, but what the reads are and what it's going to mean. Like it was the right decision, smart decision, and Ragini made it successful by making the catch. But it's if Nico had dropped that ball, and it's weird hype, you know, counter uh, hypothetical here. But if he had dropped that ball, people would have been like, "Ah, Deacon can't get it done," right? Like it, it would have been like, "Ah, uh, you know, maybe a different quarterback, you know, makes that play." But when we're talking to him, it's like. Oh no, like that throw went to that specific place for that specific reason. And it, you know, got to Ragini in the hands. And so that was Deacon taking care of his part. And one of the other things that we've seen growth from on this offense is the wide receivers taking care of their part too. I mean, guys, how many times did we see them drop balls, especially in the first few weeks of um Hill's career? Right. And a lot. A lot. And and so that was the thing where he was missing. Ross, like you said, there were so many throws that he was just missing and missing badly and, and just were not competitive throws. And they're they're usually his hardest throws. And when he would actually get them on target and then they would just be dropped, it was like, okay, there, there's there's nobody doing anybody any favors here. Now we're starting to see that like I'm making this play, offensive lines holding it up, receivers are holding it up. And now Guys, I mean, again, just going to say it, the execution has improved and the offense has improved. Just like fans didn't really want to hear out of the coaches, but it has ended up being true. So that was pretty striking to me, too. And and I don't think I will win this game without that improvement from the wide receivers, to say the least. Uh, uh, Elliot, you wrote about uh that improvement didn't you or no no you wrote about caleb johnson yeah i did which keep (laughs) right which we'll definitely talk about i definitely want to talk about caleb i want to add a couple things on on deacon uh conversation i don't know if you heard me say this when we were the press box when uh he made a couple of those throws yesterday that were just squeaked in he Mm -hmm. threaded the needle on like three or four throws yesterday where it's like Probably a couple of them either should have been knocked down or picked off, but he made the throw and the ball was caught. This is something that we did not see. Iowa four or five weeks ago would have lost this game. Oh yeah. Almost guaranteed. And I don't know if you heard what I was going to say is, I don't know if you heard me say this, but I was like, I looked at, at you and a couple of our other buddies up there. And I said, I think Deacon sold his soul to the devil. (laughs) What? How is he making these throws? And um, the other the other throw that I don't think either of you talked about yet is the throw to Addison Ostranga at the back of the end zone. That touchdown throw. Yep. I watched a couple replays of it on Twitter, and then when I was watching uh, replays and highlights this morning on TV, I was I, I I tweeted this out. I said, "I'm sorry. I really try really hard not to swear on this platform, but I said, what an effing ball by Deacon. He's a completely different quarterback than he was three weeks ago. What a damn ball. I mean, we talked about that throw to Caleb Brown 
that set up the field goal against Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it was a good throw. Every power five quarterback, starting quarterback should have been able to make that throw. I don't know that every starting power five quarterback makes that throw to Addison Ostranga that Deacon Hill made to the other side of the field, back of the end zone. Again, threaded a needle that I think it was a, I don't know if it was a safety, but a defensive back saw him start to make the throw, made the break, and the ball was so perfectly placed that that DB couldn't get to it. It was only where Addison Ostranga could go get it. And that's what separates really strong quarterback play from mediocre to bad quarterback plays, putting it where your receiver can get it. And the other thing I thought about that was the patience he had on that play too, to, you know, because it took a long time for Ostranga to get to the back corner of the end zone. So, you know, he, he didn't try to force it into somebody else or throw it too soon. You know, he waited until it was there and and then he hit Ostranga with the, like you said, the perfect placement. Yeah, that I mean, Ostranga was coming from the other side of the formation. He was the uh, the near side tight end, and and so he's <clears throat> you know dragging all the way, like you said, Elliot, to the other side of the to the field to the end zone and into the back of the end zone too. And not only was there patience there, and not only was there placement, but because of those defenders, Deacon had to rip one of those ninety five mile an hour fastballs in there too. He did not have a whole lot of time on that window. And again, not only placed it perfectly, but placed it there like that. And with all the struggles that he had with that fastball over the first few weeks, the fact that he put it right there on the money, I mean, that's the difference between six points and not in in a field goal. And that three point difference or, you know, four point difference ends up being the difference in the game that that game unfolds completely differently if Hill doesn't make that throw also I think it was right before the end of the first quarter Deacon exploited a line or a a matchup Seth Anderson was being covered by a linebacker on a crosser I think it was like a 10 or 12 yard pass but on a crosser past the um, past the line of score the uh, first down marker and based on the schematics of the play, he got uh, matched up with a linebacker, burned him, and Deacon saw it, made the throw. On an ensuing play, he he's looking for opportunities to expose defensive pass interference as well. Prior to, and that, I think that was the first time we saw him do it was 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 yesterday, maybe maybe last week, and I just it's you know went over my head, but. It, it really stuck out yesterday. He did it several times. There were also a couple moments where Caleb Brown did not finish his route and the DPI either could have been called or he could have made a play on the ball. There were, I think two plays in a row where Adam and I, you, you said, to, or we, we said to one another, it was, that's not on Deacon. A couple incomplete balls, a couple throws that he was making in order to try to get the de- defensive pass interference. He's just so much more cerebral than he was a few plays more cerebral. I don't know that he's, you know, actively um, or he was actively less cerebral or if it was just overwhelming too much over those first few games. And now he's confident in the pocket. And, you know, it's, it's so much easier to assess the situation when you feel like you're not in panic mode. And he was, he looked to be in panic mode um, in those, those first few games of the season. And, you know, one conversation that we've had, 
that I know a lot of other folks in the media have had that fans have had is why, why was, was Kirk not giving Joe Labus a shot early on in those few games. And I think we're starting to see why I think that well, a mantra of mine is that you have to be willing to look like a fool in order to be a king, or you have to be a, a, a um, you have to be willing to make mistakes in order to be successful. You have to be willing to fail and be bad at something. My first podcast my first radio show, my first article was ass. I guarantee it. I see memories pop up on Facebook of like interviews that I did. I interviewed Coach Ben Jacobson from UNI when I was a student and it popped up on my feed today. And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> but looking back now, that had to happen in order for us to be here, to be you know paid to do this, to, to do this professionally. And Deacon, he had to go through the growing pains. He had to go through the difficulties of those first few starts to get to where he is now. And I think Kirk had a, a larger vision than the fan base. And then we had at that moment in time. And that's not necessarily it is to excuse, but it's not to excuse Deacon's play at the same time. He had to work through those things in order to get to the place where he is now, the level of confidence that he's at and making the throws that he's making at this point in time. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although, you know, I think, Obviously, you can be frustrated that, you know, maybe, you know, are there ways to speed up that process? You know, you see other teams bring in backups that seem to be up to speed faster. But, you know, it is what it is, I think, at, at some level. And, you know, we obviously Iowa under Ference has an extremely, uh, I want to say, formalized process, I guess, of development and how they do things. And they're not they're not going to change too much in how they do things because there is a strong track record of success. I mean, he's been here 25 years for a reason because he wins a lot of effing games. I mean, and especially in November, like this is what 17 of the last 18 November games, I think, which is a kind of crazy statistic. So, you know, yeah, it's frustrating to, you know, to watch those early games and to wonder why, you know, Hey, we saw Labus in the bowl game and, you know, he looked okay. Why don't, why doesn't he get a chance? And it is frustrating, but you know, at some level you do have to trust the guy that's being paid, you know, $7 million and has uh, 25 years of equity and success built up. So there were some yeah. situational things in terms of play calling that were not advantageous to Deacon at that point in time. We're seeing more receiver screens now than we did however many weeks ago. That's a quick, easy throw to get you in rhythm. And now they're doing it because well, they have Caleb Brown at their disposal, which like uh, they didn't have the first eight weeks based on their own choice. So, right, it's it's a little bit of, you know, chicken or the egg, you know, what issue to blame. There's there's a few different things to, to point out in, in this scenario and regarding Deacon's growth and, you know, lack thereof over those first few weeks. Do we need to yeah. reclassify Deacon as a, a dual threat quarterback, by the way? After that, uh, <laughs> uh, sneaking Deacon. After that run. Oh, man. Crazy legs Deacon. He, uh, <laughs> but it, it was, it was great because one, the Kinnick crowd was delighted by it. And two, like he got 12 yards and, and it wasn't, you know, it could have been unproductive. It, it could have really been embarrassing. And um, 
he, you know, all the decisions he made in it, I, I think he probably could have ended up with closer to, you know, 15, you know, if he had run a, a little bit more efficiently. But, you know, um, the fact that he was able to make that recognition and didn't, you know, sort of psych him out or psych himself out of that opportunity to run and get the yards, right? He didn't, you know, he was able to sort of switch out of passer mode into running mode in, um, you know, a, a more or less timely manner. That too is improvement and and shows sort of a, a situational awareness that we weren't seeing the first few weeks. And to, to what you guys have been saying earlier, um, <clears throat> excuse me, yes, it, it is, um, it's, it's refreshing to see how this offense has uh, evolved schematically to play to Deacon's strengths and weaknesses. Um, it's It's been nice, one, to see them in a lot of more like shotgun and empty sets and formations, which hasn't really been talked about a whole lot. The fact that I, I would say I would wager by a pretty healthy margin uh, that this is the most that Iowa has gone shotgun and empty in a season since, I mean, what do you want to say, 2004 by necessity? Uh, this this season has been so much more of that look than we've seen out of, you know, Kirk and Brian to some extent. And that has helped Deacon. The fact that they are incorporating wide receivers, I mean, just incorporating the wide receivers at all after the beginning of the season. Again, some of that's by necessity. Because would they rather be throwing to Luke Lachey and Eric All? Absolutely. Right. Let's let's not get that twisted. But the fact that they now sort of have to lean on guys like Caleb Brown, like Nico, um, like would have been Deontay if he were healthy. Um that is beneficial to the offense because it creates more things that the defense has to account for that the defense just did not have to account for in the first half of the season. And we see how much or how much easier it gets for quarterbacks when the defense doesn't know what's coming. So much of how much this offense has struggled over the last three seasons has been because everybody on the other side of that line all they had to do was look at down, distance, time on the clock, and score and be like, I've got a pretty good idea of what's coming here. And that is less so the case now. Some of that is probably, uh, you know, the progression of Deacon Hill and the progression of the playbook that's available to them. Some of that is probably some sort of a, like, philosophical change in terms of, okay, we've probably dumbed it down too much for Deacon because we're also dumbing it down for the defense that's across the line. Some of it's probably just sort of Brian saying, you know what, let's just let it rip because I'm already fired. So uh, they, they should have been letting it rip from the get-go, I would say, if, if that's the case. So a lot of things sort of falling into how this offense is starting to actually put these things together. But it's all based on a foundation of the coaches trust Deacon Hill now. And he has earned that trust from the coaches, from the players. And they can actually do things with it now and score points on offense, on purpose, 
And now they're nine and two and heading to Indianapolis. And and sometimes it really does not need to be more complicated than that. This is the same thing, not exactly the same thing, but roughly the same thing that I said last week is this is complimentary football. You know, the the defense, we should talk about the defense once we're done talking about all the offensive things, Caleb Johnson, et cetera. But look at the stat line for Deacon Hill from yesterday. 19 of 29, 167 yards, a touchdown. 125.3 passer rating. Iowa fans would have killed somebody for that type of stat line from Deacon Hill three weeks ago. Absolutely. Now the running game, not quite as effective until it matters. Caleb Johnson, 10 rushes, 53 yards, the touchdown. He had the 30-yard run for the score late in the game that sealed it. And, man, we have seen little to none of Caleb Johnson over the last two weeks, two prior weeks. And, I mean, there were a few bright moments, the the run against Purdue, the return against uh, Utah State early on. But, and he, I think he had another run in there for a, a long run for a score. I'm, I'm forgetting who it was against. But um, he had bright moments and then went from RB1 clear running back one to RB3 behind Leishon Williams and Jazz Patterson. And, man, he showed up when it mattered. Not only the touchdown, but a first down, I think, like third and eight last yeah. night with 252 yeah. left. That yeah. sealed it. Yep. Yeah. That was what I what I said in essence in the article is this has been an injury yeah an injury riddled season where it's been the backups who do so many things it's been a weird season we went through all the different things Cooper DeGene hurt now obviously you don't have your starting quarterback obviously you don't have your two starting tight ends so it's had to be the next man up the next man in mentality and then with the Big Ten West championship on the line. Your original, your day one RB1 steps up, scores the game-winning touchdown, sends you to the Big Ten championship game. Yeah, I thought that was pretty remarkable and sort of emblematic of how much of this team and, and of this offense, like if you if you look at what the two deeps were on offense to start the season, Iowa has needed to lean on, to depend on, basically everybody that was on that list, not only the starters, but the backups. And if you look at the guys who have stayed healthy on offense all season long, I think it's just Jennings, Dunker, and Nico Raggini. I think that's it. I think Connor so. uh, Did Connor Colby play every single game? He might have. He got hurt like yesterday. Yeah, her yesterday. Uh, yeah, her yesterday. That's right. That's right. So that's it. And especially after the last two seasons, Iowa getting decimated on offense up and down the board should have been a kiss of death for this season. Really should have. And and would have been a kiss of death last season and the season prior. It it absolutely would have. And the fact that they've been resilient. The fact that they've, you know, stayed working hard and listened to the coaches and not the people who overreact to, you know, a three and out or several three and outs. Um, the fact that they've stayed with it 
because they really don't have an alternative, right? Uh, the, the only alternative is just tanking on the year and and wasting a whole lot of sixth year seniors' time. And they didn't do that. And you know, credit goes to the coaches for keeping these guys motivated, for keeping their their eyes on what the goals are and reminding them, you know, that all those goals are still in play. And just as much, I think it's a credit to the uh, culture of leadership within those players. And, you know, it starts with all those sixth year seniors, most of whom are on the defense. And, you know, it starts with them after every little bit of adversity saying, Hey, look, you know, our eyes are still on the prize. We're still in a, we're still playing for a Big Ten championship. Uh, we're still showing up. We've got the privilege of working hard. And it's worked. And that is something that poorly coached teams don't do. That's something that teams without winning cultures don't do. You, you see teams experience less adversity than this and fold on the season all the time. And it's understandable to an extent and yet something about this team something about the coaches and the culture and whenever you walk into that room in iowa city nope no give up no quit and uh they've been they've earned absolutely earned their way back to indianapolis because of it you know who i I, I, we've even seen some iowa teams adam that didn't have that culture you know you have to go back a while to find them because they've had a really strong culture for several years now, but you know, it's not a given. And when that, when you don't have that and you do face that adversity, the season goes sideways. You know, we've seen it in 06 and 2012 and 2014. Like those were, no one's looking back fondly at those years for good reason. And uh, you know, the, the culture wasn't there then, but it's, it's been a lot better uh, especially in the last decade, more or less. And um you're right. I mean, that that's such a huge thing to fall back on, especially when this year, like, you know, the the injury gods have been very cruel and very capricious, especially on offense. I mean, it's it's just preposterous how many games they've lost. But sorry, Elliot, you were going to say something, too. You know, whose leadership I think that this whole season speaks to the most is Jay Higgins. Oh, God. Jay Higgins. Yeah. Jay Higgins and Logan Lee, because this team very, very easily could have folded, like you said, Adam. And these guys who are hurt that were selected to be captains by voted to be captains by their teammates and Joe Evans. We'll throw Joe Evans in there. I was just waiting on that one, too. Yeah, he's in that mix, too. Yep. Because a guy like Cade, a guy like a guy like Luke Lachey, Eric All, now Cooper DeGene, though Cooper's a little quiet, can only do so much leading from the sideline. And you know who else's leadership it speaks to? Deacon Freaking Hill. <laughs> There's one for you. Deacon Freaking Hill. I like that. It's the freaking and deacon, baby. It's the freaking deacon. And this team would not have gotten to where they've gotten to. They would not have won nine games already. Or wait. Yeah. Yeah. Nine games. Yeah. Nine nine games already. If it weren't for that leadership on the field, 
Kirk Ferentz, Phil Parker did the instilling of the leadership. They've built the foundation. But where your team goes and the trajectory of your team is determined by the guys on the field and leadership that they bring to the table. I'm just, I, I, I don't know that I myself could speak any higher of, of Jay, Joe or Logan Lee. And Logan's not a guy that we've talked to a lot. We seem to talk to Jay and, and Joe every single week, uh, mm-hmm. Adam. And I mean, you see it. There's the best leaders that I've ever been around know how to have fun, enjoy each other, laugh, but they know when it's time to get to business, when it's time to be serious, and they command that respect. And from what I've seen from Jay and Joe and Logan and 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 Cade for that matter, and, and some of these guys who have been hurt, is that they have that understanding of being around people, commanding respect, but also being guys that their teammates like to be around. It's carried yeah, onto the, the field. That that's a really big part of it. And it's also striking to me that they do it in different ways, that they do it with different sort of personality types, right? Nobody would ever confuse Jay Higgins and Logan Lee for being the same guy, like personality-wise. They're they're not at all. But they're both effective leaders because of all, all those things that you mentioned, Elliot. Um Ultimately, what it comes down to is you can trust the words that are coming out of their mouth at any time. They, you know, they, they, their personalities, you know, Jay's a very gregarious guy. And, and that has a lot to do with the, the, um, with Roy J. Higgins, the third, uh, who raised him and, um, the goat. <laughs> yes. And let me, let uh, me also un- unprecedented a talk last night. It's, it's for those of you. It's it's a world where unaware people don't people don't <laughs> recognize that. But somebody uh, somebody quoted my breaking eighth hawk last night with an atomic bomb boom gif. <laughs> Let's also shout out uh, Tyler Tashman for um, going beyond Photoshop with an MS Paint right. of a like Carver Hawkeye banner hawk times eight, eight hawks right yeah, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no that. Um, the fact that there are, you know, sort of multiple ways to to go about your leadership, but just as long as you are, um, as long as you're accountable, as long as you are, you know, acknowledging the highs, acknowledging the lows, acknowledging, uh, you know, that that what your teammates are are going through is, um, you know, that it's part of their process and and not. Uh, you know, it's 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 sort of just sort of leadership one oh one at that point. And the fact that they're able to keep these guys on track, the fact that they're able to keep the you know, when you're going through hell, just keep going. And the fact that they keep these guys just going and and stay bought into everything that's been going on. And again, we talk about ready-made built-in excuses. They could have bailed on Brian as soon as he was you know, declared fired at the end of the year, right? They they could have said, well, told you, lame duck. It, it, the excuse was there if they wanted it. And yet they continue to grow on offense. They continue to make better decisions, deacon on up. And how many times did we hear at that podium, Elliot, yesterday, how many times did we hear people praising Brian for 
his coaching on Saturday and for his leadership all year, because it was several times and mostly unprompted too. So listen, I know it's unpopular and I know why it's unpopular, but if the players keep telling us Brian did a great job coaching them for Saturday and for the season. At some point, we sort of have to listen and say, okay, then he did a great job because all that matters is whether or not the players think that and the coaches think that. And apparently he did. So it's worth acknowledging, I think, even, even on his way out. I'm, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I assure you, I'm not saying he should be back in 2024. I'm not saying Beth Getz did the wrong thing at all. Um, but the fact that even Brian was able to keep his nose down, was able to keep coaching and coaching effectively, apparently, through this and keep guiding the offense to some sort of competence when it mattered, I mean, deserves to be mentioned, I think. I was not sure if you were going to go there or not. Somebody on our... Uh our free boards, which golly, that is a cesspool of, uh, of lunacy said something to the effect of, and I am not shy to say that at all. If you want to check it out yourself, if you want to be part of, uh, the, 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 the best board possible, you can go to iowa.rivals.com backslash subscribe. There is a little bit of craziness on the free, on the premium board, but we have some fun too. And you get inside information from us. Anyway, I was not sure if you were going to go there or not. Somebody said something like, Oh, the players are praising Brian. He Beth made a mistake. Oh my god! Come on, you're gonna change your tune after one game and praise because they know he's leaving. Really? Anyway, uh, that's all the time I want to give to that. To speak more to the defense, one thing that we definitely or that I that I noticed and that that we saw yesterday is the dialed up pressure on John Paddock. Now thinking about that a little bit more over these last. 12 hours, whatever it's been. Do we think that that's going to be a theme going through the rest of the season and in a, in a way to, I don't know if uh, compensate for missing Cooper DeGene, turning up the pressure. Cause Nick Jackson was in the backfield a lot yesterday and they were trying to get the ball out of John Paddock's hand quick. They were. And I think that that is going to be part of the strategy without Cooper DeGene. Because one of the things that that pressure accomplished was, like you said, getting the ball out of his hands earlier. And that also means forcing the defense to cover uh, for less amount of time. And the end result of that, 13 the end result of that is one earpiece falling out of my ears. And, and two, the other one is 13 passes broken up on the game. Led by four by Jamari Harris, who has had himself an up and down year this season. But made four plays, eight tackles too, including a tackle for loss that he played pretty perfectly. He had some down moments too. Like Paddock was picking on him more than Deshaun Lee. Deshaun Lee is going to be very good if he keeps this up, by the way. But even if Harris gave up a completion, they would throw at him the very next play, and more often than not, Harris would make the play at that point. 
right? He's not a, I got beat once, let's turn it into, I get beat three times sort of player. And that speaks a whole lot to, you know, having the right mentality for that position. The, all right, next play, let's go, next rep. And uh, he's a, he's very much a ready for the next rep kind of guy. So I'm not too worried about the fact that he has been working his way back up to how good he was in 2021 he's still not there yet but i think he will be in 2024 uh no wait he was a senior if he comes back for his sixth year we'll see that all said we're also talking about three blocked um or broken up passes by joe evans right we're also talking about um you know jay higgins had one ya black had one you know, guys are, when they get that pressure, even on that front four, and they're just getting their hands up, sometimes that's all it takes. And Joe talked about, I, I think it was his uh, fourth down pass breakup that essentially, you know, put Iowa in position to win the game. He didn't even know. <laughs> all he did was just like put an arm up and then it bounced off his, like, I think he said his bicep. And like, uh, I think he was already getting a bruise from it too. But, um, you know, that is, it's a function of the X's and O's and, and the decision to be like, all right, well, if we don't have Cooper there taking away a half of the field, how else are we going to make this decision difficult for uh, the QB? And, and pressure is one way to do it. And they're pretty fortunate that uh, not only do they have a front four with, I mean, we'll, we'll just say four guys who know how to get to the QB. But also Nick Jackson is a devastating blitzer, and so is Sebastian Castro. So there's so many different ways. You can also just like throw Joe Evans back in coverage because he has experience as a linebacker. And we saw him drop back into that, uh, you know, that that uh, short middle. Gosh, how many times on those blitzes? Several times. So the fact that they have all these different ways that they can accomplish that pressure, even if it's just just like four guys coming at the QB, when the blockers don't know which four guys it's going to be, that also helps create a lot of that chaos in front of Paddock, who, let's remember, is a backup quarterback, somehow had been practicing worse than Altmeyer. It forces him to make some difficult decisions. And at the end of the day, you know, he made some tough throws, but he also went 22 for 47 and completed like in like through for less than five yards on attempts. And that's because Iowa made it so difficult to throw on them. I mean, you know, 215 yards, but if you have to throw 47 times and you don't get a touchdown out of it, that's a tough day. That's a rough day. And uh, and it was rough for Paddock. Disguising those blitzes, especially against a young offense, or yeah, it's a young quarter, or well, not a young quarterback, an inexperienced quarterback and an offensive line that struggled. And then you throw in stunts in there. I mean, they were all over him all day. Additionally, uh, well, speaking of the pass breakups, I'll say, uh, Weitzel tweeted this out this morning. Iowa's defense yesterday amassed 13 pass breakups, 13, including third and fourth down on Illinois' final possession to help clinch the Big Ten football West Division. The 13 pass breakups are the most by Iowa football in a single game since totaling 14 in a win over Indiana in 2002. Anytime you're compared to that 2002 team, you're probably doing fairly well. And while I mean, while we're talking, go ahead. 
Arizona State. I mean, that's 21 years, and Iowa's had some uh, fairly salty defenses in that span of time. So yeah, yeah, yeah just just a good court, uh, cornerback or two in that time, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, speaking of which, Quinn Schulte was all over the field yesterday. He was sent on some blitzes. He had a little bit of moxie to his game as well yesterday that we haven't really seen from him. It's kind of a make the play, act like you've been there before, but he had a little bit of swagger on the field. We have to talk about that roughing the passer call. I don't know how Big Ten officiating continues to make horrid calls like that week after week and to get away with it because that was football, man. We're going back to that targeting call against Shire in in that Minnesota game, which was somehow not the worst call of the game. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know how Schulte is supposed to tackle him in that way that is not, uh, that is legal, I guess. I mean, because at some point he makes a perfectly formed tackle on him. He's not doing anything wrong. And then gravity takes over. All right. Like, they get off the ground and then gravity is in control. They, they're going to, they're going to fall down. He's going to land on top of him. That's what happens. But you know, there's no, there's no extra driving force or anything like that. It's, it's, it was a really ludicrous call. And we're talking about a safety, right? <clears throat> a, a guy who is generously listed at 209 pounds. I mean, Elliot, you and I talked to Quinn a few times this year if he's 209 i'm three bills like i'm, I'm sorry uh if if he's 209 i'm 209 not quite but yeah. he is not 40 pounds bigger than me no and I, I i appreciate that rule if it's a 250 pound defensive end or you know if, if it's ya black landing straight on the qb flag it just just go ahead right but schulte coming out of blitz hits him and the natural forces of what happens when two guys run into each other happen. You not only do they get a first down out of it. Well, or not only do they get the 15 yards, but they get a, a, a drive sustaining first down and they ended up getting points out of it. And that to me really feels, you know, I don't think the refs do that on purpose necessarily. Uh, but it, it does sort of seem like you're bailing an offense out of a failure at that point. And if you think about what penalties are supposed to, you know, the role that penalties are supposed to play, I would say it's to make sure that the game is competitive and that there isn't like cheating that affects the competitiveness of a certain play, right? You can't line up in the neutral zone to give yourself that sort of advantage. I don't think there was any competitive advantage to letting Schulte get away with that hit, right? It wasn't excessive contact. It wasn't, um, you know, throwing the, the football player equivalent of a boulder at the guy, right? It's it's a safety coming on a blitz and he hit him and they they landed on each other. Now, I, I did think it was funny, Um uh, the very next play that Iowa got pressure on Paddock, it was when Nick Jackson was coming on a blitz. And Jackson hit him, but didn't go down, didn't wrap him up, just like popped him and stayed on his feet. 
And Paddock was still complaining to the refs, still wanted another flag for that one too. Didn't get it. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, it all it took was just that one play for Iowa's defenders to go like, all right, we can't do that. We'll do this. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a, another flag like that for the rest of the game. But, boy, situationally, in, in every way, shape, and form, I thought it was a terrible call. And, and like you said, Elliot, it's football. Let these guys play football. Let them hit. Let them compete. And as long as they're not playing dirty, and I don't think you can call anything about that Schulte hit dirty. And I, and if the roles were reversed, if the jerseys were reversed, and some safety from Illinois put that hit on, let's even say Cade McNamara, because you know Deacon being as big as he is sort of changes the whole thing. If a if a safety hits Cade McNamara like that, and it doesn't get flagged. I don't think anybody in the press box even notices, right? No, no one's going to complain. And if somebody does, it's like, all right, just chill a bit, right? Like <laughs> the, the, you, you can't ask the refs for that flag. And, and so the fact that it actually did get called, it gives the Illini drive new life. It, it just seems like bad officiating to me at that point. Let them play, let them compete. And if you're going to throw a flag, have some idea in mind as to what that player should have done instead and whether or not it's feasible in any way, shape, or form, especially when we're talking about personal fouls for hits, right? You, If you target somebody, and especially on replay, and you say, you know, lower head, you know, flag him, eject him. You drive a QB into the ground with a defensive end, flag him, sure. But if you watch that play... I don't know what you can ask Schulte to do differently. And when you throw flags for guys and you don't know what they should have done instead, it's just bad officiating. It It's bad for the game that they're playing. And it's just sort of, it doesn't create any trust in the officials either. And officials could really use a whole lot more trust from fans these days. That's my two cents. To summarize what you said after the Minnesota game, Doing too much. Yeah. Way too much. Keeps happening. Before we wrap up, gentlemen, anything else that we've missed talking about the game? Anything else you guys want to talk about before we we get out of here and and move on to this ensuing week? The only thing I wanted to talk about for a minute was uh, we we talked about Ostringa a little bit already, but, you know, he also had that really great block on – uh, Johnson's, I think his touchdown run. Um, yep. He had a phenomenal seal block. And it's just like, if I could buy stock in anybody on this Iowa team, I mean, there's a lot of guys I probably want to buy stock in. But he, for sure, like given Iowa's, you know, pedigree at the tight end position, the development there, like that dude is going to be a really, really good tight end for Iowa. I've been a big fan of his since I, I was first able to see him in that spring game. He and Deacon Hill had a connection in that game too. Um, there was a, a post that he ran over the middle, middle where Deacon hit him in stride and it may have very well been a touchdown. If I, I think he tripped over his own feet. This was a while ago. I think this was, when was it? March, April spring game. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've I've been high on him since I was first able to see him. He's the the, the third guy, but behind uh, Luke Lachey and, and Eric All. And I went back and looked at his rivals profile, his recruiting profile. We had him as a five five three star, so barely a three star. 
ends up at Iowa. He's from Sun Prairie. Um, I, I think uh, we might have to might have to talk to a uh, old Clint Cosgrove about that one. See if we can. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that might be revisionist history too. But uh, he, he I, I've really liked what I've seen from him as well, Ross. I, that, that's that's a good point. And then uh, Tyler Ellsbury, I was just going to say, he stepped in for Logan Jones yesterday. And, you know, we talk about next man in on the offense. And it's like Adam said, it's literally every single position on the offensive line or offense two deeps has been, you know, someone has played, I think. And he's had to come in and play a lot the last couple of weeks with Logan Jones kind of battling that that injury. And he's done a great job. I mean, I have not seen a lot of uh, bad – bad you know blocking situations or letting guys through or anything like that so you know props to him and no issues with the snap either yeah yeah that that's 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 not an you know it's not a nothing thing um yeah the, the one thing that i'll just sort of point out caleb brown um 10 targets from deacon hill seven catches 71 yards 36 yards after the catch that's a lot of trust. And that is knowing that, hey, Caleb Brown is really physically talented and has a lot of gifts that basically nobody else on that receiving team or on that receiving core, especially the guys that are healthy and in that too deep, that they don't bring to the table, Caleb does. And for all that turbulence, in the beginning and middle of the season that he went through. He gets his number called as soon as Deontay gets banged up. And it, you know, we'll we'll see when the next time is that we even see Deontay at this point. Doesn't stay down on himself. Doesn't, you know, let being away from the team for that one game, you know, ruin the rest of his season. And here he is leading the team and, and making great plays not only to like bring the ball in but then what he's doing with the ball after the play you know going back to his high school career as a running back you know there's a difference between seven catches for 71 yards 36 yards of yak and seven catches or you know even let's say six catches for like 40 or 50 yards and and way less of yards after carry like that is him using his unique skill set to be productive. And that is something that I wouldn't be getting out of anybody but him. And the fact that he's able to stay persevering, that he is another one of these like offensive, wait your turn, you know, like keep working hard, keep improving in practice. They are watching. Next man in, he's prepared for it. And here he is leading the team and receiving and starting to actually put together all that potential that we've been hearing about since he committed to Iowa so many months ago, just sort of out of nowhere. And it's very encouraging for the next three years because when he's going to be a sophomore, junior, who even knows like what his senior season's going to look like at this point. Uh, but he is looking like that go-to receiver that Iowa's been waiting for for Lord knows how long at this point. I I think that deserves mention too. You get him in space and good things happen. Who would have thought? 
Who the four-star guy from Ohio State. Anyway, that should wrap things up today for us on a hot cast. Stay tuned for our Nebraska preview. We'll be getting somebody from the Rivals site, whether it's Greg Smith or I think it's Steve Merrick is on that site as well. Another one of our Rivals guys. But uh, either way, we'll be previewing that game before, hopefully before Thanksgiving. And we'll get that up for you so you can listen on your way to Lincoln if you're headed that way. Or if you're sticking around home, maybe you want to listen while you're uh, chowing down on some turkey on Thursday. But either way, women's basketball tonight, Adam will be there for that. They take on Drake in Iowa City. In Iowa City. In Iowa City. And the men are back at it on Thursday as well. So going to be an eventful couple days for us covering them. Uh, They'll take on Oklahoma in San Diego. So stay tuned for that. Also, recruiting news on the way you can find all of that iowa.rivals.com backslash subscribe if you are not a premium subscriber yet get all the premium content from us whether it's recruiting basketball or football and we appreciate you tuning in to this episode of hotcast if you are watching on youtube make sure you subscribe so you do not miss any episodes hit that like button drop a comment tell us did we miss anything talking about this game uh from the weekend and then Hey, drop your predictions for the Nebraska Nebraska game while you're at it. Nebraska is a hard word to say when you're from Iowa. It just kind of makes you cringe. But anyway, also subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you're listening to the podcast. That way you don't miss an episode. If you're on Apple Podcasts, drop that rate and review. It helps us out a lot, and it does indeed make us very happy. For now, my name is Elliot Clough at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by Ross Binder and Adam Jacoby of Go Iowa Awesome and iowa.rivals.com. We will see you next time.